Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you for joining us on today's show on Myeloma Crowd Radio. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank Decada Oncology for their support of this episode. Today's show is unique. We've been holding Myeloma Crowd Roundtables around the country and plan on hosting more meetings next year. We're very grateful to Takeda Oncology, Amgen, and Signal Genetics for sponsoring these key meetings for myeloma patients. At these meetings, we invite myeloma experts to talk about relapsed myeloma, high-risk myeloma, new approaches being used in the clinic, and also a doctor or facility's unique approaches to tackle myeloma using a variety of methods. Each meeting has sessions where each of the experts discuss a particular topic, like immunotherapy, nanotechnology, or high-risk myeloma. During the day, we reserve plenty of time for two sessions of questions and answers. This is one of everybody's favorite part of the meeting where audience members can ask general questions of the panel of experts in attendance. While the questions are not meant to be personalized treatment questions, We've had great questions asked that benefit everyone. The Q&A sessions are fun and even entertaining because sometimes the experts have differing approaches and opinions. It speaks to both the science and art of treating the complexities of multiple myeloma. This show is a series of such Q&A sessions from our roundtable meetings. At our St. Louis meeting, we had the privilege of having Dr. Maury Gertz of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Keith Stockerl-Goldstein from Washington University, Dr. Ravi Vij of Washington University, and Dr. Guido Trico from the University of Iowa in attendance. Now, due to possible sound issues we may have had for each attendee question, I will pose the questions asked by the audience members, and then we'll hear the expert answers. So the first question was, how is risk assessed? Expression profiling, which is, again, well, you know, much newer and not done routinely, um, all done from that initial bone marrow specimen. And that's a diagnosis and relapse, not, in be, or not, not when you're in remission? It's not looked at typically in remission. Okay, so yeah, but, yeah, but if it's not done and you still have myeloma cells in your bone marrow, and especially if you have more than 10% of your, of your bone marrow cells being myeloma cells, you can still do this test. And it will show up how? It will show up in the, in, in, when you do the testing for the plasma cells where they first select only the plasma cells and then look at those, they will see what the abnormalities are. They may be a little different than what you would have had in the beginning because of the treatments. They may have changed a little bit and may have selected a different clone than you had in the beginning, but you will still find extremely important information from that assay. But you have to have abnormal cells in the bone marrow. If you have no abnormal cells in the bone marrow, you cannot find the abnormalities. But the significance of high-risk myeloma is most at the time of initial treatment, initial diagnosis. As you get more relapse, nearly all myeloma becomes high-risk myeloma by definition. So the significance of some of these 
things that we've done may hold true at first relapse as well. But when you go beyond that, I think that, again, uh, the information we may have, we know that more myeloma becomes cytogenetically high risk, and uh, but the behavior of most of the myeloma at that time is, you know, more like high risk once your second, third relapse. So doing it repeatedly at fourth, fifth relapse at this time, I don't know how much information it provides. And, and also to clarify, we often do cytogenetic fish testing on every bone marrow specimen. Again, it's not to look at changes in risk, but even when we're looking after treatment, after a transplant to see if, if you're in remission, if we know that your cells had a specific abnormality, we can search for it and get a higher level of understanding. You know, under the microscope, we don't see the cells, but we can find 2% of them by doing the fish testing. So it's often done, but as, as Dr. Vidge mentioned, the, it, does it help us prognosticate all the time? No. Is the 1114 translocation a high-risk feature? I understood that it was not. Um, the 1114 translocation typically is a good prognostic indicator, but with time you can acquire additional abnormalities such as the deletion of 17P, and then it becomes much more difficult to treat this disease. But in general, it's a good prognostic factor. The thing that you need to know about 1114 is that it's one of the most difficult to get a stringent complete remission or MRT of all the diseases available, and it's not uncommon that still when people are in a complete remission that you can still find, if you have sensitive enough techniques, some form of disease with 1114, much more common than with most other translocations. But no, it's still a good disease. Now, if it diagnoses you had no chromosomal abnormality later with repeated relapses, can that change? Or are there other myeloma clones becoming more active? Um, I would say that the people who have no chromosomal abnormalities, if you do specific enough tests uh, with myeloma, are between 0 and 1%. Everybody has abnormalities. It's just how specific your test is and how sensitive your test is. If you do regular metaphase cytogenetics, you will find that two-thirds have no abnormalities, but that's because you don't look at the right cells. With fish, it's 90% uh, plus. With gene expression profiling, it's 99% plus. So uh, people who have no abnormalities, uh, when they have active disease, either you hit the spot where there was no disease at that time, and you should try to find another uh, bone marrow spot, but everybody has abnormalities. Myeloma is a very chaotic disease, and lots of abnormalities. I notice so many of the drugs are combined with dexamethasone. What does it do and why isn't there a replacement coming along for that stuff? What, what can we do as patients or do you have suggestions for taking dexamethasone? Mori? Sure. <laughs> so let's go back well before any of the effective chemotherapy drugs were developed and just say what about dexamethasone all by itself to treat myeloma? 50% of patients who take dexamethasone alone as a single drug, 50% will get a 50% reduction in their myeloma protein. Dexamethasone as a solo agent is a highly effective treatment. It directly kills myeloma cells. Because the side effects of dexamethasone are different from the side effects of all the other drugs, 
it's combined in almost every single regimen because it has a separate toxicity profile. Having said that, the insomnia, the mood swings, the withdrawal fatigue. I don't tell you that. <laughs> right. The steroid rage <laughs> are all very realistic and experienced myeloma doctors recognize that all treatments are a balance of the bad side effects and the good side effects and it's typical to make compromises over time so that the steroid dose is modified. In fact, just to have some perspective, if you go back 10 years, dexamethasone in a month's period of time. Today, you would take dexamethasone four days out of 28 days, once a week. It used to be 12 days. 12 days of dexamethasone every 28. And then trials demonstrated that although it was efficacious, there were so many bad vascular side effects that the four days turned out to be better. Uh, and, of course, I haven't even talked about what it does to your blood sugar, what it does to the integrity of your bones. And I've seen a couple people develop bowel perforations that I think were related to dexamethasone. Bad for immune system, cosmetically not so pleasing, the bruising on your arms are all very real issues. But again, uh, everyone on the stage, I think, recognizes this over time, has developed an experience not to adhere to what's necessarily written down as a dose, but to make adjustments appropriately over time. Is there any relationship between treatments and other diseases like secondary cancers? So, so what I think what you're asking about are, are what we call secondary cancers. So um, myeloma, if it comes back, it's myeloma. But what can happen as a side effect of some of the treatments is that new cancers can develop either cancers in the, in the bone marrow like leukemias and other blood cancers like lymphomas. Other tumors can also be increased, and we know that uh, is, uh, it seems to be associated with maintenance uh, use of lenalidomide. There seems to be some increase in some of the cancers, but myeloma, once it's myeloma, it's always myeloma. Is there anything in the research that shows how to predict secondary cancers? Yeah, there are risk factors. If you get radiation therapy, you increase your risk. If you get Revlimid, you increase your risk. And there is any type of therapy, you have to remember that there is never a free lunch. Every therapy has side effects. Uh, but in general, what kills people is not the secondary leukemias or whatever, the secondary cancers, it is the original cancer. And you need to make sure that you treat the original cancer well enough uh, so that your chances of dying from that cancer are minimized. Is myeloma genetic? So I think the real question most people ask in the office is, should I have my first-degree family members screened and have their proteins checked periodically to see if they're going to get myeloma? And the answer to that in our practice is no. And I think, again, it can be sometimes confusing when we talk about genes and genetics to separate that from heredity. Because the abnormal genes everyone is referring to, and Dr. Tricos referred to that in the first question, the genes are abnormal only in the plasma cells, only in the myeloma cells. 
the other cells of the body don't show these gene abnormalities. And so you can have genetic changes in the myeloma cells that have important predictive value for risk, but that has nothing to do with whether your brother, your sister, your kids, your aunts and uncles will or won't develop multiple myeloma. Thank you. And when you're in a complete remission, all those abnormalities are gone. And so it's, it's not in your normal cells. What can be done to not lose muscle mass with this disease? In question. And it, it, it's, it's hard because particularly with dexamethasone, it can cause muscle weakness. And I think when you're on chemotherapy or you're hospitalized for a stem cell transplant, you get into this use it or lose it. And so it goes about the diet. There's no specific diet, but it needs to be a healthful diet. Although I'm not sure I agree with Dr. Trico about the amount of alcohol I'm allowed to consume. <laughs> but the business about activity is really quite important. I mean, a cancer diagnosis isn't a free pass to stop being active and become sedentary. That isn't, there's no way I think to specify what is the correct activity. But remaining active, I think, is an obligation that every patient has to the best of their ability. Sometimes that's hard if it's hard to stand up from a sitting position or if you can't feel where your feet are. These are very real issues. But I think we each have an obligation to maintain that activity level. And I think that is not a trivial question at all. Actually, just to expand, the, that activity is important not just for muscle mass, but also for keeping the bones strong. And we know that walking helps prevent bone thinning, and we already know there's going to be a bone problem from the myeloma. If you don't qualify for a clinical trial or there isn't one available, how does off-label drug, drug use work? Yeah, so we, you know, as physicians, we can prescribe any medication we want. If we yeah. feel there's an indication. Are you going to pay? But that's the issue, is that the insurance company may not pay for off-label use. And so these drugs, as I mentioned, they're all very expensive. What is off-label? So you mentioned earlier the drug venetoclax. Drug, when it's approved, it, the FDA gives it specific indications. So uh, a drug like bortezomib, when it was first approved, was approved just for recurrent myeloma. It's now approved for mantle cell lymphoma, but if you tried to use it for mantle cell lymphoma, again, a different type of cancer, before it had that approval, you, you probably would not get reimbursed. Now, there's, there are some things that change that a little bit. Um, the, some drugs that don't have an FDA-specific FDA indication for, let's say, myeloma can be used for myeloma. Insurance companies may pay for it if it is in, uh, in what the Medicare, Medicare has a formulary, and they, things get in that formulary based on a variety of things. The NCCN, which I mentioned, that list of, of uh, agents, um, one of the, if a drug is in the NCCN guidelines at a certain level, then it will make it into the, what we call the compendium, and typically the insurance companies will pay for it. But the drug we were talking about is certainly not at that level. But if it's good for the 1114 translocation, it doesn't translate for them? This drug and exactly how effective it is, what, it, what its interaction with the 1114 really is. I mean, as a single agent, only 15% of people responded to it. And again, it seemed to be just in the people with 1114, but the majority of people with 1114 still didn't respond.
two or three or four drugs may be necessary. Right. Those combinations have to be tested. Again, as Dr. Trico said, more, more drugs come at a cost. And so not all regimens that we give have multiple drugs. I mean, some drugs are used alone. Would you expect anybody who's had double transplants to relapse? <laughs> that is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, the only thing I can tell you is that uh, with the most intensive treatments where you give uh, two autologous transplants back to back within three months and uh, you give at least two years of maintenance therapy, that 50% of your patients are still without any sign of progression at 10 years. And nobody is going to convince me that if you can keep people in a complete remission steadily for 10 years without any evidence of disease recurrence, that this is not going to be a curable disease. That doesn't mean that those 50% are going to be cured, but a fraction of those 50% are certainly going to be cured. Do you know what causes multiple myeloma? Those type of epidemiologic data is very difficult. I found in my practice that 100% of our myeloma patients regularly think about sex. That's something that we've identified as a uh, risk factor. But in terms of environmental, occupational, all of us here have seen uh, bank presidents and politicians and custodial engineers all develop myeloma. And I don't think there's any common thread with regard to environmental exposures and occupation that really explain myeloma. It's true that if you've been exposed to extensive radiation, that is a risk factor for myeloma, but that history can only be obtained in 1% of patients. The overwhelming majority, we don't know why they developed it. And there does seem to be some uh, association, at least the government uh, goes along with that, with Agent Orange exposure. So uh, the importance of that is not that the disease acts differently or it could be prevented because Agent Orange shouldn't be around anymore, but it is important for veterans who were in Vietnam and developed myeloma and other, there are a variety of other malignancies that there are benefits from the VA for that group of people. With the list you showed of drugs available in 2003 and now in 2016, will what is prescribed be determined by the genetic features or does doctor opinion and region come into play in what you're going to get prescribed for you? It, it's, a variety of, it's a variety of things and, and that's why we really need to individualize. Certainly the genetic signature is important but we also have to take into account other medical problems. You know, someone who's got poorly controlled diabetes, we have to be careful with dexamethasone, for example, how much we give. Someone who has peripheral neuropathy already from something like diabetes, we have to be careful if we're giving drugs that can cause that. Um, so there's a variety of things that go into it. Overall, performance status or frailty is important. I think one of the reasons to see a myeloma specialist is to make sense of what's the best option for you out of that very large list. You keep referring to 1114. What does that mean for those of us who don't understand the science? Well, basically what it means is that part of chromosome 11 has gone now to chromosome 14 and part of chromosome 14 has now gone to chromosome 11. It's a balanced translocation and, uh, and the reason why that happens is because that oncogene, the, the gene that makes the cancer cells grow, 
it does much better if it's under the direction of uh, the promoter on 14 than when it's under the direction of the promoter on chromosome 11. So it tries to help itself by doing that. What is a plasma cytoma that grows outside the bone marrow in myeloma? What is it and how should it be treated? I mean, you know, these are all the same disease. You know, it's a malignant plasma cell. So uh, a normal plasma cell, we all have them, is there to make antibodies help us fight infection. And a series of events happens and it becomes a cancer. That cancer can show up in a variety of ways. It can show up as multiple myeloma, but it can also form separate tumors. And we call those plasma cytomas. There are some people who have a solitary plasma cytoma, no evidence of the disease in their bone marrow, and that gets treated in a very specific way. I tried to get into a CAR T-cell trial over the summer at another facility, and I got no support whatsoever. I was on my own making phone calls, calling my doctor's office several times a week, and hearing nothing back. It was the most frustrating thing imaginable. Yeah, so the thing is that we do have the CAR T-cell trials right now for leukemia and lymphoma. We do not have them for myeloma. They're actually available only at very select centers, PEN and uh, uh, NCI at the moment. Uh, we, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, are not able to tell you whether you're eligible for their trials. You have to unfortunately be screened at their institutions, and I can tell you, I'm sure that there are long waiting lists because they're available at a few centers, and there's so much recognition of the technology now. Um, but I think that, again, uh, we work with the patient advocacy groups to often facilitate this uh, kind of referral. Um, in select cases, if we know the investigator, uh, we, uh, we can make a call, but it's not always sometimes clear who at the other end is the person to reach out to. So I'm sorry to hear your experience, but uh, hopefully uh, either uh, we can talk offline or one can, uh, you know, uh, work with one of the patient advocacy groups to help you find a CAR T-cell trial. What's our overall takeaway? What do we do today? What do we do tomorrow when we visit with our doctor? I think it's fair to have a discussion uh, with your provider that even if things are going well right now, what thoughts there are about what would I do next and I think I share the cynicism that uh, there's a reluctance to refer I think all of us have seen patients who by the time they're referred there's very little for us to offer and we have doubts and, and wonder why we haven't seen some patients six or twelve months earlier and so I think something that I think a common theme that you've heard is trying to advance the science and enroll in a clinical trial. Um, and so asking about what will follow is one. And secondly, about whether there is an opportunity to get in on the ground floor, if you will, uh, with regard to new therapy. So I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. When my mother's IgA MGUS finally turned into multiple myeloma, uh, it seemed obvious to me that she should be enrolled in a clinical trial. And so we flew her up. And I think she first got access to Revlimid in 2006, uh, which is long before it was actually uh, 
widely used, and she went on a clinical trial of melphalan, prednisone, and lenalidomide because it seemed to me that would be, A, a way to access an agent uh, early, two, get it for free, and number three, advanced knowledge in multiple myeloma so that successive generations benefit from the information. In my opinion, the most important thing is that your treatments are not necessarily given, but directed by people who know this field in and out. And uh, that even if you're already on some kind of treatment, that you should still try to ask for a second opinion to see whether you're on the right track, whether the treatment that you're given is right for you, and then go from there. Thanks for listening to another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio. Join us for future shows to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.